We are continuing on Psalm 119. So if you would grab a Bible and turn it there. Psalm 119. And this afternoon we're going to consider the Dallas portion. We consider the Gimel portion this morning. So we're at verse 25. Psalm 119, verse 25. If your Bible has a little Hebrew character on top of this section, and they have the word Dallas there, if you have good enough eyesight, or if your glasses work well, you're going to see that the horizontal bar on the little Hebrew character just passes over the perpendicular bar. Right, so if you look up just a second, it's like this. There's this little part right here that goes beyond the perpendicular bar. That is the tittle, or the smallest stroke of a pen that Jesus refers to when in the Sermon on the Mount. He says that not the, the a jot or tittle of the smallest letter of the alphabet or the smallest stroke of a pen. That's the kind of stuff he's referring to. That just little stroke of the pen that shows in letters such as uh, the Dallas there. So this is the word of our Lord, Psalm 119, starting at verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. I have declared my ways, and you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, so shall I meditate on your wonderful works. My soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. Remove from me the way of lying and grant me your law graciously. I have chosen the way of truth. Your judgments I have laid before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Do not put me to shame. I'll run the course of your commandments, for you shall enlarge my heart. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father, indeed, we pray that you'd enlarge our hearts this afternoon, that we, you set our hearts free, that we might grow in you as we hear your word proclaimed. For asking Jesus' name, amen. As we saw this morning, we can see again that the psalmist wrote this stanza in a time of suffering. In the previous eight verses, he, he is discouraged because of all the circumstances of life exterior to himself that have gone against him. People are mocking him. He's alone. He, uh, the leaders of the town are speaking against him. When we come to this portion, these eight verses, what we see here is that he is discouraged, not because of exterior issues, but because of internal turmoil of his own soul. Here in the Dallas stanza, his soul, as it says in verse 25, is clinging to dust, and it's melting with heaviness, as it says in verse 28. The Bible is a special book. Not only it is inspired by God, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative, but also it deals with the actual issues that we deal with in everyday life. The stuff we read in it is not pie high in the sky. It is the stuff of common folks like us, stuff that we experience in life. 
And most of, us, most of us here have found ourselves in a depressive state at one point or another of our lives. Uh, I think is a fair statement. Uh, we may even say all, but I'll stick with most of us, have found ourselves in a depressive state in our lives. That is where we find the psalmist in this particular stanza of Psalm 119. In his experience, we find, we find in, in a depressed man, we find hope and direction for ourselves as we deal with depression in our own lives. In the experience of the psalmist, we can gain our own experience as we battle depression and discouragement at times in our lives. And the first thing we see here in this passage is that in his depressive state, the psalmist leans on the word of God and the God of the word. And you notice how the entire strophe, the entire stanza, of the entire section is addressed to God, is a prayer to God. And he fights, the psalmist fights through the natural tendency to go away from God, or at least not to go to God when he's in the depressive state. And instead he goes to God and he prays to him here in these eight sections, eight verses. He brings it to God because he knows God is the one who can help him to do something about it. So he prays in verse 28, My soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. And notice that he expects God to do something about his depression through the already revealed word of God. He's not asking for something that's out there. He's not asking for a new revelation. He's not asking for something that hasn't been invented yet. He asks that God would help him through the word of God. In verse 25, he says, Revive me according to your word. In verse 26, Teach me your statutes. Verse 27, Grant me your law graciously. Verse 30, The way of truth and judgments lay before me. Verse 31, I cling to your testimonies. And 32, Run the course of your commandments. So he runs to the Lord in his depressive state, and he asks that God would speak to him through his word, that would take him out of that state through his word. And brothers and sisters, faith, faith expresses itself in depression as we run to God knowing that we can find the way out of it in his word. That's how faith expresses itself in depression. Second thing we see here in this passage is that in his depressive state, the psalmist keeps going. He doesn't stop. The psalmist doesn't allow depression to paralyze him. Notice the action verb words throughout the psalm. In verse 26, he declared his way. In verse 27, he meditates. In verse 30, he's chosen the way of truth. In verse 30, again, he has lay, uh, laid your judgments before me. In 31, cling to testimony. In 32, run the course. All these action words, things that he's doing uh, in, in his state of depression. Our natural inclination when depressed is to stop doing the very things that can help us overcome it. We tend to be paralyzed and instead of being able, by God's grace, to get out of that state, we tend to spiral even deeper into it. We tend to stop praying. We tend to stop reading the Bible. We tend to stop participating in the corporate worship of the Lord in the Lord's day. And all those things bring us further and further the spiral of death known as depression. And, and the psalmist realized that instead of running away from these things, he needed to run into these things. 
He, he is confident that his depression will resolve itself as he kept on moving toward God. And so in verse 32, he says, I will run the course of your commandments, for you shall enlarge my heart. He's going to continue moving towards God. He's continue obeying God because it is God who is going to enlarge his heart. And, and to enlarge his heart, to, to, to have one's heart enlarged in this context, to have a heart set free. Set free of the heaviness of the soul. Set free of the depressive state. And that happens as a result of his running to obey the commandments of the Lord. He will continue, the psalmist will, to follow what the Bible says because he's confident that God is who he says he is. And that he's going to do what he says he is going to do. And, and he gained this confidence by meditating on the word and the works of God. In verse 27, he says, Make me understand the, the way of your precepts, so I shall meditate on your wonderful works. Now, this, this is the third time that this psalm mentions the idea of meditation. In verses 15 and 23, it talks about meditating on the word of God. And in this one, it's to meditate on the works of God. Now, what is to meditate? Meditate is to think about, is to muse, to consider all facets, and to consider all angles of a thing, to try to work out all the implications of a particular idea. Meditation is not what Eastern Transcendental Meditation says it is, an emptying of your mind. Biblical meditation is actually the filling of the mind with the meaning and application of the Word of God and the works of God. Now, we have an idea what to meditate on the Word of God means. But how about here where he says that one of the ways that he is seeking God in his depressive state is that he will meditate not necessarily on the Word of God, but on the works of God. How do we do that? What does that mean? Well, to, uh, the, the Scriptures describe the works of God usually as creation and providence. So to meditate on the works of God is to consider, to think about, to analyze creation as it reveals and relates to God, and to think about the way that God deals with the world in providence. To meditate on the works of God is to consider, think about, analyze providence as it relates to God. And so the psalmist looks at creation and he thinks about God, and he analyzes how that is, is revealing God and how that uh, helps him follow God. He looks at the way that God is governing all things with his powerful preserving and see how that it, uh, talks about God and how that strengthens him. And that's one of the ways that God ministers to him in his state of depression. And notice that the psalmist finds, in verse 27... The works of God, wonderful, full of wonder, full of awe. He recognizes God in creation, recognizes God in providence, and he finds those things full of awe. He's amazed by what God does. He's awestruck by what God does in creation and in providence. Now, why? Why was the psalmist depressed? 
Think about the verb, verses that we read and why was he depressed? Well, certainly the persecution and suffering he, he was experiencing could be a factor in his responding to life with depression. Life can get us down. Paul says that much in 2 Corinthians 4, where he says, if we're perplexed, we are discouraged because of all the things that are going on in life. So, just plain old, sometimes life stinks. You know, you know, uh, uh, as Pollyanna as you may be. Does anybody, do you know what I'm referring to when I talk about Pollyanna? So, some of you may not have an idea, but as Pollyanna as you may be, sometimes life stinks and gets us down. Living in a fallen world surrounded by opposition can be very discouraging, especially those of you who work in a secular job where every moment of every day just in being bombarded, being inundated, inundated with anti-Christian ideas and having to fight that all the time, that can get you down. But in this particular passage, there is an element of guilt of sin as well. It's not just the circumstances. There's an inner turmoil here. In verse 29, he says, Remove from me the way of lying. It seems like the psalmist had, may have been involved in lying. He has sinned, and he's depressed as a result of unrepented sin. He prays that God would graciously teach him not to lie anymore. In the second half of verse 29, he confesses his ways to God, and God forgives him in verse 26, where he says, I have declared my ways, and you answered me. But brothers and sisters, unrepented sin can be a major contributing factor to a depressive response. We see that with David. In Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, David says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. The, when we're in the depressive state, we need to look at our hearts. Am I harboring unrepented sin? And notice that, that it is unrepented sin, not major unrepented sin. We tend to think that only some big sins will affect us. And that the little sins, minor sins as it were, don't affect us. But that's not the case. Unrepented sin in our lives will drive us away from God, will drive us, drive us away from His people, regardless of being a big sin, as we think of big, or being a minor sin, as we think of minor. Unrepented sin in the life of a Christian will bring shame. Shame that should be there, that will contribute to depression. We should be ashamed of sin if we haven't repented of it. On, on a side note... Shame for repented sin may also contribute to a depressive state. And shame from repented sin is shame that should not be there. Because we repented of it already. And that's one of the reasons why we should work out at not sinning. Because we have, we have a tendency of that shame following us a lot in our lives. Now, a minor sin that is a major contributor... And when I say a minor, I always see quotation marks around the word, because there's no such thing as a minor sin. But a sin that sometimes we consider minor, that is a major contributor to depression, is a sin of discontent. Being discontented is a major contributor to 
a depressive state. If you read Psalm 73, you're going to find that. The, the psalmist there is discontent with the situation. In verses 15 and 16, he says, If I had said, well, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generations of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God then I understood their end. So he was looking at the situation of the wicked and they were prospering. He was not prospering. He was serving the Lord faithfully. He's discouraged to the point where he was so discontented and discouraged to the point that he almost forsook the faith. Said if they had asked me to speak on that day, I would have dishonored the generation to come. I would have denied the name of God. That's how discouraged I was because I was discontented with my lot in life. Till... He went to the sanctuary of God, then understood their end. And then that's how he concludes. Whom have, I, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When discontentment was resolved, then he was able to come out of that depressive state there. Brothers and sisters, all discontentment is toward God. Whatever discontentment we experience is toward God. And that's why one of the things that the psalmist did was to meditate on God's word and works to deal with discontentment in his life. There, There are days and seasons when it feels like the weight of the world is on our shoulders. When life itself is bearing down on us. When a weight that seems almost palpable makes getting out of bed virtually impossible. There are days when that blanket feels like it's a thousand pounds and you just can't get out of bed. Just putting one foot in front of the other feels like an insurmountable task, as if we are wearing concrete boots. What's the solution? The psalmist says, Strengthen me according to your word in verse 28. And notice that in the request for strength, the psalmist acknowledges that the heaviness of soul is a weakness. It's something that that has to go away. And notice also that in the request for strength, according to the word, the inspired and infallible text is teaching us that the ultimate solution for heaviness of soul is the word of God and the God of the word. So let me ask you this. In what ways does the word address heaviness of soul? In what ways does the word minister to heaviness of soul? In what ways does the word minister to our depressive states? And I want to suggest four ways. There's more, but I want to suggest four ways. First, the word addresses heaviness of soul in telling us that our Savior, who experienced heaviness of soul himself, is able to help us. And that has to be an encouragement, that your Savior experienced heaviness, experienced heaviness of soul. You say, Pastor, are you saying that Jesus was in a depressive state? I think so. Go to Gethsemane and see him crying before his Father, Father, if it is all possible. Luke used the word anguish in that passage. 
let this cup pass from me. He was so uh, anguished that he sweat as if it was drops of blood. Go to the cross of Calvary when he he screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our Savior experienced that. He has walked into that darkness. And he came out on the other side. So he can, he's able to help us. He's experienced what we experience. Remember, he experienced all of life yet without sinning. And that's why he is a perfect Savior who can answer, as Hebrews 4 tells us, our prayers. Because he knows what we need exactly because he's gone through that as well. The word addresses heaviness of soul, secondly, in telling us that we can bear under what seems unbearable. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, it says that no trial, no temptation, no struggle has overtaken you except what's common to men. And God is faithful that he will not let you be tested, tried, beyond what you can bear. So everything we experience in this life we can, we can keep on going. We can bear it. And then the verse says, And with the trial, he also provides a way of escape that you can bear with it. So, it's, it's not unbearable. It might feel unbearable, but it's not unbearable if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, he speaks to us, In this, in showing us that we are not alone in the struggle and we're not alone in the victory. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says that we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, present and past. People who have gone before through it before us, people who are going through it right now, who are saying, you can get through this. You can keep on running towards Jesus, and he'll get you out of this heaviness of soul. And lastly, the word speaks to addresses the heaviness of, of our souls by assuring us that even in the darkest moments, God is close to us. The psalmist says in Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? For you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. There's no moment of, of, in your life, even in the deepest darkness, if you're believing in Jesus Christ, where your God is not work, walking with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Even when the closest relationships on earth, of a father and mother, are broken, the Lord Jesus Christ is never going to abandon you. And he be standing at the end of that race as a cloud of witnesses is encouraging you on through the valley of darkness. He stands at the end with his arms open saying, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, for I will give you rest. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you are a God who cares for your people. We thank you that you've demonstrated that abundantly in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, in our times of darkness in our lives, that we would look to Christ, who is the light of the world, who is able to carry us through the darkest valley and provide and take us to the green pastures and still waters. Father, thank you that you have shown that to us in your word. 
and help us to grow in love with your word. For asking in Jesus' name, amen.